If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Mark chapter 6. It's on page 892 if you have one of the Bibles from uh, the welcome table. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 30 this morning, another uh, significant chunk of Scripture. Um, this is another, if you've, if you've been here um, any amount of time in, in Mark, you, we've gone through a few of these um, things that, that would be we called a Mark and Sandwich, okay? Where he takes a, a, a story and he kind of splits it into two pieces and then inserts another story in between there in order to bring deeper meaning to both. The, these stories are oftentimes not necessarily related to each other until Mark puts them in there so that as we read through those, we see these connections and get a, a greater meaning. And so um, this morning, we're going to see him send out the 12 disciples. And in the middle of that, before they return, he's going to give us the story of John the Baptist being executed in prison. And... Um, and it, it, it's going to tie up some, some loose ends that we've seen from Mark. In Mark chapter 1, it says that John is arrested, but it doesn't tell us why or how, right? And so we're going to learn some of that today. Um, and then also in chapter 1, Jesus is, uh, he, he, he calls some of the disciples to himself, and he says, I'm going to make you fishers of men, right? And then um, there's a significant shift in Jesus' ministry in chapter 3 when he says that he summoned those he wanted, and they came to him, and he and he. Uh, uh, appointed them as apostles that they would be with him and that he would send them out to preach and have the authority to cast out demons. And so um, up to this point, these 12 have been with Jesus a lot. We've seen them throughout these other chapters that we have read. If nothing else, as, as, um, as observers, if not participants in what Jesus is doing, um, but always learning from Jesus, being with Jesus, well, now Jesus, there's another turning point in the, in the ministry where he's finally going to um, not just have them with him, he's going to send them out. He's going to do what he said he was going to do. Send them out to go do what Jesus does and, and say what Jesus says. And so um, we're going to see that today as well. And so if you've ever wondered um, it, what, what really is the purpose of following Jesus, what really does it look like? Do we just simply go to church? Do we just... Simply encourage one another. Um, today's passage is really going to, to challenge us in the way we think about what the term discipleship means, okay? And so um, it is a longer passage, and so uh, again, we're just going to work our way through it. I want to pray, and we'll just work our way through it a little bit at a time, and then um, we'll see what the, what the Lord has for us this morning. So Lord, we, do, we love you. God, we're so grateful that, that we get your word each and every week, that we have the full counsel of God in our hands and that it instructs us, it corrects us, it rebukes us, it equips us, it trains us for righteousness so that we'll be thoroughly equipped, ready for every good work that you've given us to do. Lord, we believe this is your word. And so as, uh, as I speak it today, I pray that your word speaks to us. I pray that your spirit um, applies it to our hearts and our lives. And I pray that we would leave here looking more like Jesus than we did when we came in. Again, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, human beings are creatures of comfort. Yes? No? Yeah, yeah, we all know this, right? 
I think it's most reflective in our culture through um, convenience and safety right now. Okay? I remember when I was a kid and, and I wanted to change the channel on the TV. I had to get up off the couch and I had to go over and I had to turn the knob or slide the slider. Anybody have the slider? Anybody remember that? No? Yeah? Um, and, and then maybe, you know, adjust the antenna while you're standing there so that you could get like the fifth channel. And, um, and, 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 and now though, now we can plug in this voice-activated assistant, right, in any room of the house uh, that will turn on the lights, that will turn off the lights, that will dim the lights, that will put music on, that will adjust the thermostat, that will answer the phone, that will tell us when the laundry is done, or the dishes, that will give us the latest news and weather, that'll order something online, it'll show us at the fr- who's at the front door and let us talk to them all without the need for us to get up off the couch. Praise God. <laughs> right? Because, Lord forbid, we have to pause the TV show that we're binge watching on our favorite streaming app with our high-speed internet. Right? But that doorbell camera, it also lets us see if there's an intruder, right? It's, an, it's, an, it's a safety mechanism as well. If we're away from home, and, or maybe we left the kids at home to fend for themselves, we can kind of keep track of, of that. We can still, you know, um, call the authorities or whatever. Or, or it'll let us know if somebody's trying to steal the package that we ordered, right, when it arrives. Or what I love, personally, is, is I can pull up my phone, and, um, and right now it's just with, with my wife, because she's the only other one that... Uh, has a phone currently, but um, we can open our phones up, we can pull up an app, and I can know exactly where she's at. Not because, like, I don't trust her, but because I just, there's this sense in me when we're apart, I feel that angst of wanting to be back together, right? And so there, there's an element of safety that I feel, of comfort that I feel. I can pull out my phone and I go, oh yeah, she's three minutes away, right? Now, we don't, we don't need all of these things. If we did, they would have been given from the beginning of time, I think, right? We don't need these things, but our desire for comfort, it definitely makes them more appealing to us, doesn't it? But here's the thing. Our desire for comfort, it it poses a problem for us as Christ followers. Because I think we would all be willing to give up anything that's, that we deem as extra, right? We'd be willing to, at least more easily willing to give up the extra comforts that, that I just described if need be, but, but we would have a harder time giving up those things that we've come to believe are necessities in our lives, right? So here, here's a quick test for you. I want you to fill in this blank, just in your mind here. Jesus, I'll follow you, but please don't take blank away from me. Now, we all have an answer for that. I don't think anybody in here had to hesitate. We might not want to say those things out loud, but we all immediately think, Jesus, I'll trust you. I'll follow you. But please don't take this away from me. Please don't take them away from me, right? If you were forced to choose between Christ and something else, what would be the hardest thing for you to let go of in order to remain faithful to Jesus? What cost is too high of a cost for you to follow Christ? Now, our passage today is going to force us to come to grips with the reality, with the possibility that following Jesus could cost us everything, including our own lives. But it's when we come to grips with this reality that we're able to let false comforts die 
And then we are able to truly live in the comfort of Christ himself. We come to grips with this reality by understanding what is the true call of discipleship, what is the true cost of discipleship, and what is the true comfort of discipleship. And those are the things that we're going to look at today. So the true call of discipleship. Mark 6, verse 7. He summoned the twelve, this is Jesus, and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a staff, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on an extra shirt. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place does not welcome you, or listen to you, you are to leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. Now, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God in chapter 1, right? If we remember the summary of what he's, what he's teaching, all, everywhere he goes is given to us in um, verse 15 says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. This is the summary of Jesus' message that he takes with him everywhere he goes. And then he summoned those that he wanted and appointed them, uh, 12 of them as apostles so that he would spend all his time with them. They would spend all their time with him, learning from him until the time came that he would send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. That time is here. We get to see this now in chapter 6. In verse 7, Mark uses the same language that he used in chapter 3 that signifies this transition in Jesus' ministry. He says he summoned them. He, he's calling them back to himself and saying, listen, it's your turn. It's your turn. He sends them out in pairs and he gave them authority over unclean spirit. Now up to this point, they've done this, this a lot of time with Jesus. They've done a lot of learning from Jesus. And he's sending them out now as participants in the advancement of the kingdom that he's proclaiming, right? And so they're going out to do what he's been doing. They're going out to proclaim the, the good news of the kingdom and to call people to repent. And they're going out in the authority of Jesus to heal people and cast out demons as a sign that the kingdom has come. Going out in pairs uh, was good for two reasons. First, in uh, Jewish cult culture custom, it was necessary for two witnesses to, that gave any testimony for that testimony to be, to be validated. So sending them out in pairs was, was a way to, to um, uh, uh, fulfill this, this law that if one person goes out and says this, they might not believe him, but if two people go out and say this, that validates their testimony as they continue to give it. The other reason he sends them out in pairs is to give them this, this companionship. This partnership in, in the mission, right? Now, before we moved here and planted Redeemer, I started coming to Minunk every week. Um, and like I said, I'm, I'm introverted, okay? I'd rather just kind of drive around in my truck on the outskirts of town and just pray for the town than to get out of it and meet people, okay? I, I love you. I love you. I want you to know that. But this is who I am. This is, this is not who I am. But this is how I function, and this is, these are the things that God is transforming in me to get me out deeper into companionship with other people, okay? And one of the ways he did that is he brought a friend along with me who said, I'm willing to, I'll meet you in Eureka. He lived in Pekin. I'll meet you in, the, in Eureka. We'll drive to Manung together, and, uh, 
and we'll get out of the truck and we'll walk around. We'll eat lunch in town. We'll, we'll, we'll talk to people. We'll pray for them. We'll share the gospel with them. How's that sound? I'm like, yes, please. Because I know I need to do this, right? I'm called to share the gospel with others. I'm called to pray for people. I'm called to, to be a witness to the kingdom. But it's hard to do by yourself. And so God gave me this friend who would come with me, and this is what I love about him, because he's not, he's not nearly as, as introverted as I am, and so we would be at a restaurant or something like that, and he'd just be like, hey, I brought the waitress back over so you could pray for her. I gotta pray for her now, right? I can't be like, no, no, thanks. Could you just bring me the check? Um, God used this, this friend in my life to, to challenge me, to get me out of my comfort zone, right? This bubble of safety that I feel to proclaim the message that people need to hear, including me as I speak it. And so sending people out in pairs, that's a good thing, right? We're not called to, to follow Christ alone. You need to have a personal relationship with Jesus, but it can't be a private one. We're, we're meant to follow Christ together. And so maybe some of you, maybe you have been going at it alone for a while. Maybe, maybe you, 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 you feel worn out and, and discouraged. Maybe you're the only believer at your workplace or in your family or in your circle of, of, of friends or whatever. My prayer is that, that this becomes a place for you, not only of rest, but uh, of, of to be with each other and with Christ, but, but to send you back out with someone else determined not to come back next week without having shared the gospel, not to come back next week without having prayed for or with someone, not to come back next week without growing in your conviction that you have a mission God is sending you out on, and he's doing that together. So, so think about it. Look around the room today. Before you leave here, who's somebody that you can ask and say, man, you know what? I've seen you every single week here. I want to get to know you. Let's share the gospel with each other. Let's, let's practice doing that together in a safe environment, right? Where we won't get ridiculed necessarily. But so that we can know it so that we can share it. And then, hey, guess what? Let's go out together. Let's go eat lunch somewhere in town or let's, let's go talk to your family or your friends. Go out in pairs, in groups. Staying in the first place that was offered to the disciples um, helps keep the disciples from looking for better lodging. So Jesus tells them not to take anything with them. He tells them to stay in the first place that, that, that welcomes you. And he's doing this in order to build dependence into the disciples as they go and humility into the dis disciples as they go. They have, to, they have to trust God to provide for their needs through the hospitality of others. And they're not going to go in and be like, oh, thanks for, thanks for letting me in, in, in here, but I'm going to move down the street where the square footage is twice the size and, and we get a warm meal and uh, they're going to give me slippers and a robe and a hot towel for my face. Those kinds of things, right? That is the Lord's provision for you. He wants them to know that. This is who is, is welcoming you and they're welcoming you because they're welcoming the message that you bring. 
The hospitality they're showing you is, is, is an indication of their response to the gospel. Don't walk away from that. Stay there with them. Encourage them in that and be encouraged by them. Depend on God to, to provide for your needs through the hospitality of others. Now, he says if a town doesn't welcome you, which evidently there were, there are going to be towns that won't welcome, whole towns, not just people, but whole towns that don't welcome them, the disciples or their message. And so Jesus tells them to shake the dust off your feet when you leave that town as a testimony against that place. Now, when the Jews, whenever they would come back from a Gentile region, before they left that region, they would shake the dust off their feet as a sign to the Gentiles of the distinction between the Jews as God's people and the Gentiles as pagan, unbelieving, unclean people. This distinction that we're clean and you're not, okay? And it served as a warning sign to the Gentiles that they were still under this, this impending judgment of God because they're rejecting him. And so Jesus is sending the disciples, though, here to Jewish villages. So when he says, shake the dust off of your feet, these people are going to know what's happening. And they're going to realize, hopefully, Lord willing, what that means. We're denying these people who've come to give us this message and they're shaking the dust off their feet. That's, that's telling me as a Jew that they think I'm unclean and that I need more than just ceremonial cleansing to be made right with God. There's something else in their message that I need to listen to. So they shake the, the dust off their feet, but this isn't a cold-hearted, arrogant act. It's an act of love. It's an act of mercy. It's a final plea to the Jews to, to warn them of that if they're rejecting uh, this uh, this message, they're rejecting Christ, they're, they're, and, and they need to be ri- reminded of their accountability to God through that rejection. You're rejecting this message that will save you. This is on you still. You're, 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 you're telling us to leave. You're telling salvation to leave. You're telling uh, Christ to, to leave, essentially, and the judgment of God remains on you, Jewish person, who believes you're clean when you're not. Because you have rejected him. See, we need to remember that these instructions, though, are given in this context of a short-term mission trip. Jesus is sending the 12 out. They're going to come back with him shortly. And so as they go out, they don't have a lot of time to prioritize, to, to, to move into a town and stay there for a long time. And so as people reject them, they shake the dust off their feet and they move on. That's not as easy for us to do in a long-term context. And so we want to be careful not to just take this out and be like, I told them the gospel on Monday, they rejected it, and right? I did my part. Good riddance. It's not easy to walk away from a family member or a best friend or a coworker that you see every day or a classmate that you run into. So it doesn't necessarily mean that we walk away and give up for good when we're rejected. But what it does mean is that we need to plead with them and make sure that they are very clear on what they are rejecting. That we need to remind them that they are remaining in their sin by rejecting this message of hope and that they are under God's right and just and necessary condemnation and eternal judgment. This is the truth. 
but it's not something we do in arrogance. It's not something we do uh, smugly. It's something that we offer in this loving plea of humility with a desire. Listen, I don't, I want you to, I want you to know you're rejecting the only thing that can help you. I want you to be helped. Take this. Believe it. We need to give that warning and a desire for them to repent and be reconciled to God. As Christ followers, we're called to follow Christ in his mission of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and, and, and this is important, calling people to repent. Calling people to respond to that good news. And we do that in dependence upon him and upon one another and in humility and love towards others, knowing that we will face rejection. It's going to happen. Jesus says, if they, if they rejected me, they reject, they'll reject you too. You're, you, you, I bet every one of us has at least one story of where a time where we shared the gospel or offered to pray with somebody and they turned us down. But we also need to understand that we could face something far greater than just rejection. And so we need to look at the true cost of discipleship. Look at verse 14. King Herod heard about it because Jesus' name had become well known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah. Still others said he's a prophet like, the one, like one of the prophets from long ago. When Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and to chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. John had been telling Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. So King Herod hears about what the disciples are doing, and he immediately associates it with Jesus because his name had become well known and the disciples were saying and doing what resembled uh, uh, what they were saying and doing resembled what Jesus was saying and doing. So this this poses a good question for us to just kind of pause and think about. Do the people of this community know who you represent? Do they know what you're saying and what you're doing and do they think of Jesus? Do they see your works and hear your words and, and, and relate that to Christ himself? And if so, are what you're saying and doing reflective of the Jesus that we find here? Even though the, the disciples are associated with Jesus, there's still a lot of, uh, of speculation as, as to who Jesus really is. Some say he's John the Baptist. Some say he's Elijah who never actually died but was taken up to heaven. Uh, and some say, well, he, he's a prophet like the prophets of old. We're going to see these same um, guesses, same, same three opinions again in chapter 8, and in, in any case, while they still have, don't fully understand, they, they at least recognize some kind of, di of divine authority, some kind of holiness attached to Jesus. John was a prophet, Elijah was a prophet, and they say Jesus is a prophet. And so um, they don't realize, though, that Jesus is God himself, and yet they still assign this, this level of divine authority and holiness to him. So Herod's freaking out because he, he thinks that John the Baptist has come back from the dead because he killed John the Baptist. 
And now he thinks that he's come back to life, whether to punish or haunt or whatever, who knows. But Mark calls him King Herod here in verse uh, 14. And that's a sarcastic title for Herod here. Mark's giving him this, this title. Herod, King Herod is not king. He's a tetrarch, which means he is uh, sharing, not, uh, he doesn't rule over the full uh, kingdom. He only has a quarter of it. And he has to share that rule with his brothers. And um, at one point, Herod had asked Rome, and remember that Rome is the, is the, the full and final authority over this area. And, and Herod had asked Rome if he could have this title of king. And um, uh, Emperor Augustus gave him a hard no. No, no, you, you can't do that. You can be a tetrarch. I'll give you these two. These two regions you get, okay? He gets Galilee and he gets Perea, which happen to be the two regions where Jesus' ministry takes place the most. And so Herod, um, this, is, this is Herod Antipas. The, the Herodian family is super jacked up, okay? It, it, there, there's so many, it's weird, okay? But, but we, we, to try to understand just a little bit, Herod Antipas, his father is Herod the Great, who was alive when Jesus was born, okay? Herod the Great had all of the, the young boys around the vicinity of Bethlehem killed after the wise men came to him and told them about Jesus' birth. So he killed all the, all the boys that were two years old and younger, uh, younger. This is Herod the Great. He has Herod Antipas, which is one of several sons that he has. And Herod uh, Antipas it now rules over these two regions of Galilee and Perea. Now, Antipas di- divorced his wife, and then he convinced Herodias to divorce her, uh, his brother, Herod Philip, and marry him instead. And so John the Baptist comes to them and he says, you can't have your brother's wife. This is wrong. This is wrong. And Herodias, she doesn't like what he has to say about that. So she holds this grudge against John and she starts to look for a way to kill him. But, but Herod likes John and, and he fears John as a holy man and so he, he doesn't want to go all the way to killing him and so he just kind of puts him in prison where he can keep an eye on him and, and be entertained by him essentially and, and listen to him. This is a good reminder here for us that fear and respect doesn't necessarily equal faith. Right? Herod was intrigued by the message but he didn't believe it. He didn't respond in repentance to it. Even if the people show you respect and reverence, you still need to call them to repentance. They need to understand that it's the gospel ultimately that they have to respond to regardless of how they respond to you. That is where we all have to get to and deal with, the gospel message itself. And so you must be willing to hold on tightly to the integrity of the gospel message regardless of how people treat you. Fear and, and, and reverence do not equal faith. A call to repentance and a response in that. That is the beginning of faith. John didn't compromise the message and so he's put into prison. But again, Herodias, she's got this grudge. She wants him dead. And, and so she's looking for this, this kind of waiting, biding her time until... Uh, an opportunity comes, and that's what we see in verse 21. It says, an opportune time came on his birthday. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Excuse me. When Herod gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. When Herodias' own daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. 
And the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. He promised her with an oath, whatever you ask me, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? John the Baptist's head, she said. At once she hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter immediately. Although the king was deeply distressed because of his oaths and the guests, he did not want to refuse her. The king immediately sent for an executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. So he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a, plat- uh, on a platter and gave it to the girl. And then the girl gave it to her mother. And John's disciples heard about it. They came and they removed his corpse and they placed it in a tomb. Herodias is so determined to put John to death that she's willing to use her own daughter as a pawn in her scheme to get what she wants. Her daughter's probably 12 to 14 years old here. Can you imagine this? She wants this man's head. So she sends her young daughter. This is the same, the, the word girl here is the same word that Mark uses back in uh, chapter 5 with Jairus' daughter who was 12 years old. The only, only places he uses that word. We can assume that this is a young girl. She comes in, she dances in front of her stepfather and his uppity-up friends who are touted as noblemen, but they're just as perverted as Herod is. And, and so, uh, in, a, in a drunken and lust-filled stupor, he, he gets all happy about what she does, and, and so he makes this rash promise to her. Listen, whatever you want, I'll give it to you, up to half my kingdom. Now we know this, he, it's not much of a kingdom to give. Right? But he's making this promise. He's, he's, he's puffing himself up in front of these men, offering her much more than he can actually follow through on. But now he's bound himself to whatever she asks for. This is the opportune time for Herodias. And we get, opportunity, uh, we get um, confirmation that she's been masterminding this. When, when the girl doesn't just give an answer, she's like, hold on, I've got to go ask my mom. Right? She goes out and she asks Herodias. And, and without hesitation... Mom, what should I ask for? John the Baptist's head. This is what I want. You go back and you tell him. And so the floundering of Herod back and forth, the weakness of Herod, it's, it's contrasted here with the decisiveness of Herodias. She's known the whole time what she wants. And when the girl asks her, again, no hesitation, give me his head. Give me his head. She wants it, and she wants it now. And now the weakness of Herod is fully exposed in verse 26. He realizes the foolishness of his oath. He's deeply distressed, it says, right? Man, I, I got I to do it now. I, gotta, I have to kill him because I don't want to look like a fool in front of these guys. And so he follows through quickly, trying to make up whatever ground he lost, apparently, to feel like he's in control. Done. Sends an executioner. The executioner uh, goes and, and removes John's head and brings it back on a platter. This is the Bible. This is, this is uncensored here. This little girl brings the head of a man back to this so-called king because of the vindictive grudge of his wife. Because they rejected the message of salvation. This is what people are willing to do. This is what people are capable of when they do not surrender to Christ and his kingship. 
And so as a result, a holy man's day of death came on a wicked man's day of birth and celebration. John lost his head. Herod lost his soul. You tell me who died that day. Verse 29, Mark tells us that John's disciples came and he got his body and they, and they laid him in the tomb. John's ministry is officially over. Okay, No coming back from this one. But in contrast, we'll look at verse 30, and this is where John brings us back. It says, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. So there's this contrast between verse 29 and verse 30, and John's disciples, they're, they're somberly burying their leader. And at the same time, Jesus' disciples, they, they're coming back and they're all excited about what they've been able to do and teach and how people have responded to that. And they can't wait to, to share that with him. And so, so why now does Mark put these stories together? Why does he sandwich these two things together? He does it to remind his readers of the true cost of discipleship. Remember, Mark is writing his gospel to a bunch of Roman Christians who are on the cusp of being just wickedly persecuted by Emperor Nero. They will be tortured, they will be killed. By putting the death of John the Baptist in the middle of this uh, expansion of Jesus' ministry, we as believers, every reader of this gospel now is reminded of the tremendous cost that's involved in the kingdom expansion, right? But that doesn't mean every believer is going to be killed for their faith. But it does mean that it is a possibility that we need to be willing to accept. From rejection by a friend or a family member to persecution by leaders and authorities to executions by enemies in the name of another God. We need to understand that any and all of those things are very real and possible things that we could face from real people who are looking for an opportune moment to carry out a vindictive grudge or are too self-consumed and fearful of others to stop it. But as we face this reality, we need to understand that even though it may come at a great cost, there is no cost that we could pay that will surpass the value of the message that we've been given to give away. Nick Ripkin is the pseudonym of an American man who served as a missionary for over 25 years in North Africa and in the Middle East in some of the most difficult places to take the gospel. And on, on top of that, he's done extensive research uh, on the persecuted church in almost 60 countries. He wrote a book called The Insanity of God, and, and in it he writes about this man he calls Stoyan, who's also not his real name, who grew up under communist persecution after World War II. Now, Stoyan's father was in prison for 10 years, and every morning one of the guards would come out and, and he'd take some of his own human waste and he'd spread it on the piece of toast that he gave Stoyan's father to eat for breakfast. It's a real thing. It happened. Stoyan himself was in, in prison for several months and, and he was persecuted and he was threatened by secret police as he organized an, an underground publishing network uh, to translate and print books that, that proclaimed the gospel to others, encourage others. And so after hearing story after story after story from Stoyan, Nick Ripkin described uh, the end of their interview in his book and he writes this. He says, as my interview with Stoyan drew to a close, 
I knew that it was going to take a long time to process the wisdom, insights, and conclusions that this one man had drawn from his life treasure of faith experience. When I mentioned that to Stoyan and thanked him for his time, he smiled modestly and replied, I thank God and I take great joy in knowing that I was suffering in prison in my country so that you, Nick, could be free to share Jesus in Kentucky. Nick continues with this. He says, those words pierced my soul. I looked Stoyan straight in the eyes. Oh, no, I protested. No, you're not going to do that. You're not going to put that on me. That's a debt far too large that I can never repay you. And Stoyan stared right back at me and he said, son, that's the debt of the cross. He leaned forward and he poked me in the chest with his finger as he continued, don't steal my joy. I took great joy that that I was suffering in my country so that you could be free to witness in your country. And then he raised his voice in a prophet-like challenge that I knew would live with me forever. Hear these words. Don't ever give up in freedom what we would never have given up in persecution. That is our witness to the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't ever give up in freedom what we would never have given up in persecution. That is our witness to the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These words from Stoyan, they capture the essence of the true comfort of discipleship. As Christ's disciples, we're called to go share the good news. This is a command. This is something we are supposed to do, that we have to do, that we get to do. It's a privilege because it's given to us straight from the king. And we go take that message of the good news to the kingdom, uh, uh, of the kingdom to the world around us. And we, we do that understanding, knowing that as we do that, it could cost us our lives. That's a reality that we could face. But we confidently proclaim the gospel anyway because we know that Christ has conquered death. This is the comfort of discipleship. Our suffering on behalf of the gospel is a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power that comes with that. John the Baptist came proclaiming repentance and forgiveness of sins. He was arrested. He was killed. Jesus came proclaiming uh, a message of repentance and forgiveness of sins. He was arrested. He was killed. His disciples that he sent out to proclaim a message of repentance and sin were arrested and killed. Why would we think that our discipleship looks any different? The true comfort of Christianity is not comfort in our rights and liberties as American citizens. I'm so thankful that I live in the U.S. I praise God for that. But our comfort is not in what we have here. Our comfort, the true comfort of Christianity is Christ himself and the freedom that we have to live with him as citizens of heaven. The very essence of the gospel is the good news that Jesus came and lived a perfect life of obedience to God and that he suffered and died at the hands of wicked and sinful men in order to pay the penalty for our sins and satisfy God's wrath and judgment against us so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to God in love and in mercy and in grace. There's, listen, there's no greater comfort for us to know that, than that our soul has been purchased. And we've been given entry forever into the kingdom of God as his children 
through the death and resurrection of his son. You may be rejected and killed by the kings and kingdoms of this world, but you are held forever in the mighty hands of the king of all kings, and you will be with him forever. Do you know that comfort this morning? I want you to. I hope you do. It's true that we forget that. It's true that sometimes we we overlook that. But it's also true that we can flat out deny that. Every one of us has to come to this understanding of what Christ has done and respond in repentance and faith. That is the avenue that God has chosen to save us through faith in his grace. Through Christ. And so if you're still denying Jesus and you're still trying to build that kingdom of self, I want you to know this, your kingdom, it's not going to last. And I know this because I've tried to do it. Your kingdom will crumble under the hand of God. Why not let it fall now? Because Christ has been crushed so that you don't have to be. Because Christ has willingly given himself up to give you life. And so you, you, you repent. You, 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 you believe the gospel, the good news of God's kingdom that's come in Christ. You, you take the affection that you once had for your sin and you put that on Christ. I love Jesus more than I love myself, more than I love my sin now. And you take the hatred that you had for God and you put that on your sin. I hate my sin and my old self more than I hate God. This is what repentance is. It's a turning from our sin and and our old way and turning to Jesus and committing ourselves to him. So that's what you need to do this morning. You confess your need for him and you find true comfort. Listen, when you confess and you come, he won't turn you away. This is more comfort. I can do this and God will rescue me and meet every need that you ever have. He will show you your real necessities. And you will find that they're met in him. Now, to my brothers and sisters in here this morning. I think last week it was I said I'm I'm more convinced now than ever that we need a kingdom perspective of the world around us. It's so vital for us to see more than just being in a gym with fold-out chairs. To see more than just thinking that, that we're just waiting and biding our time for a building. to see the kingdom. If we're honest, we we want to see the kingdom expand, right? But I think also we would have to admit that we are often more drawn to the appealing comforts of self-preservation than we are of self-sacrifice. And what that does is it makes us look more like disciples of Herod than it does like disciples of Jesus. But the good news is God gives us uncomfortable grace in all kinds of forms, to draw us back to him and help us see what's truly important. And that's the real comfort. He's going to strip away these creature comforts that we hold on to. And he's going to let us see him for who he is and we're going to find rest in him. And so thank him for the uncomfortable things in your life that he uses to transform you into the image of his son. Last thought here. Comforting thought. 
the message of the kingdom doesn't start or end with you. Praise God. It starts and ends with Jesus. The message of the kingdom wasn't silenced by the death of John the Baptist. It wasn't silenced by the death of Jesus. It wasn't silenced by the death of his apostles, disciples, in the early, in, or the, the deaths of the disciples in the early church. Over 2,000 years, the message of the kingdom has only spread farther and faster, wider and deeper. And with the spread of the kingdom message comes the spread of the kingdom itself as people believe the good news and repent. No amount of persecution, no amount of rejection, no amount of death can stop that from happening. You may someday be silenced, but the gospel never will be. Thank God for that. He will not leave himself without a witness. But here's the thing, don't silence yourself. Don't silence yourself out of fear of discomfort Proclaim the good news of the kingdom and call people to repentance as you answer the true call of discipleship. Don't fear rejection, don't fear persecution, don't fear death, but embrace these things as the true cost of discipleship. And then rest in the true comfort of discipleship, knowing that Christ is with you in your mission, he's with you in your death and in your persecution, and you will be with him in the resurrection. Following Jesus could cost you everything including your life. Embrace that reality. Engage in the work of the kingdom fully. Let the false comforts die. They're going to anyway. And live in the comfort of Christ himself because in him we have life eternal. Listen, we have one because he has one, amen? Jesus, we thank you that you as king over all have promised us the kingdom in its entirety. And because you're king over all, you can deliver that promise. And so we wait, we worship you, and we understand that you've commissioned us to go to spread the message of the kingdom until the king returns. And we pray that you would help us to do so boldly, lovingly, in humility and dependence upon you and one another. without fear of how we will be treated or how people respond to us, but trusting that they'll respond to you in faith and the kingdom will grow. We worship you and we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.